Good morning. My name is Tracy Heitschmidt, and I have had the privilege of serving in Kid Village for about 15 years. And I will be reading from John 15, 12 through 17, in the giant Bible they gave me. Uh, I've, I've heard it's Josh Patterson, so I'm not sure. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, TVC. Today we have the privilege of hearing from Justin Whitmill Early. Uh, Justin's written several books. Uh, He's a lawyer. He travels and speaks. He's a man captivated by the beauty of Jesus, the glory of God, and the local church. Would you guys welcome Justin to the stage? Thank you. That was a great video introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. I am a lawyer and an author, but probably the most important thing that you need to know about me is that in ninth grade, I was the kind of guy who tucked in his t-shirts. <laughs> I also played the clarinet, and I had on most of my binders a, a Bible verse on the front of them. So you can guess how well high school started for me. <laughs> it was not great. I had just moved from another city, actually. I got to high school, I didn't know anyone, And it was like everything about it was a cause for anxiety, you know, whether it was deciding which t-shirt I would wear and tuck in or deciding whether or not to answer a question in class. I started to learn that answering them all correctly was not the best way to do it. (laughs) Um, Everything was an enormous cause of anxiety until one day I had a conversation at the lockers that changed the course of my life. Not exaggerating. Here's what happened. I had gone to a youth retreat a couple weeks before, and at this youth retreat, I had met a guy named Steve, okay? And Steve and I, that weekend, bonded over drum sets, skateboards, and hacky sacks, all right? Very 1990s, right? (laughs) Um, I had been watching these trends from the back of the social scene with my shirt tucked in and realizing these were some of the things that cooler kids were doing. And, uh, you know, some of you are like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Some of you are like, what is a hacky sack? (laughs) But that doesn't matter because, here's the point, Steve and I had that weekend what I would call the the C.S. Lewis U2 moment, okay? C.S. Lewis writes, friendship arises when two companions discover that they have in common something. And they say, what, U2? I thought I was the only one who liked hacky sacks. And suddenly... Through semi-articulate fumblings, a friendship is born. Semi-articulate fumblings is like the best way to describe what happened at the lockers, because Steve and I are standing there a couple weeks later, and we can't remember who said it, but one of us said, do you think we should be best friends? (laughs) 
It was, it was that blunt and awkward. And as if it was a Wes Anderson movie where everybody just says what they're thinking, one to the other one was like, that sounds like a good idea. And that was it. Like as if, as if it was a decision on whether or not to go get a Slurpee. It was like end of conversation and one of the most important moments of my life passed rather uneventfully at first. And then everything changed. Not my circumstances, mind you. I was still in like the adolescent, early public high school where I didn't know a lot of people. So my circumstances were the same, but my experience of them radically changed because suddenly I no longer faced that world alone. I faced it beside a friend. And ever since then, I've had this uncanny feeling that I was made for friendship. And I open with that story this morning because basically what I want to tell you this morning is that friendship will make or break your life, physically and spiritually. Friendship will make or break your life. It's a matter of life and death because you were made for people. And I'm going to explain to you what I mean by that is that God made you so that you cannot experience him or the world that he gave you until you experience him beside other people. Or I would actually even go farther to say that you cannot fully behold the beauty of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. You cannot fully behold the beauty of the gospel until you behold it through the lens of friendship. You were made for that. So I'm going to do three things this morning. I'm going to explain that idea, why you were made for friendship, number one, why the gospel explains friendship, number two, and then number three, how do you do it? All right, let's dive right in. So why you were made for friendship. I'm saying you're made for people. What do I mean? If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, God, God's creating the world, right? God is making water. He's making oyster mushrooms, the northern lights, magnetic properties. And every time he's saying, good, good, good. This is like the drumbeat of Genesis 1. And then he creates Adam. He says, very good. But then strangely, in chapter 2, he looks at Adam and he says, not good. Which should, if you, if you get what Genesis is doing, it should sound like a record scratch. Like everything stopped. Like, wait, something is wrong here. God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good that you are alone which is kind of weird because God is standing there saying it to him, right? Can you imagine you're on a date with your wife and you're like, this is awesome. Tonight is so great, except for I'm so lonely. Like, that, would, that would not go well. Like you're, you're, God is actually, so it's a weird thing to say. It actually sounds blasphemous, except that the triune God is saying it. He's saying that actually you can be lonely with God. Which is, which is to say that God made us such that we can't experience him the way we were made to until we experience him alongside others. So hear it again, because it might be the most important thing that God has to say to you this morning. It's not good that you're alone. But it is good when you are known by others and known by God. So, because if you look at the end of this passage, you get the sense of the beauty of Eden when Eve came. Adam and Eve were naked and they had no shame. This passage connotes this paradise of being fully known, like exposed, 
to each other and to God, and yet fully known and still fully loved, no shame. And that beautiful relational reality lasts about a sentence until Genesis 3 at the fall of the world. But notice that in the fall, this relational theme continues because when sin enters the world, the breakdown is all relational at first. It's all fig leaves and hiding. It's all blaming each other and hiding behind the bushes from God. The fall, the pinnacle of it, of course, is Adam and Eve being sent out of Eden, away from relationship with God. And the Cain story in chapter four is actually kind of an echo of the whole friendship theme because when Cain is sent away from God for the world's first murder, he cries out in protest. It's so poignant. Genesis 4.14 paraphrased, no, I will be a restless wanderer, Cain says. I'll be hidden from your face and those that find me will kill me. See, Cain gets that loneliness is a death sentence. Spiritually, because he'll be hidden from the face of God. And physically, because other people will kill him. In other words, sum it up like this. Loneliness is the opposite of human flourishing. And the, the, the great thing about knowing that you were made for people is that it explains why you feel the way you do. Think with me for a second. This is why when relationships are going well in your life, you feel like something fundamentally is right about the world because it is. That's the paradise we were made for. And it's also the paradise we lost, which is why conversely, when relationships are not going right, it feels like the whole world is upside down and broken because it is upside down and broken when relationships are broken. Biblically speaking, see, friendship with others and with God will make or break your life spiritually and physically. And this totally explains our modern moment. Have you noticed? So we're actually living in a time where we have recently documented and learned that empirically speaking, loneliness kills the body. So you might not know this. We've been living in now almost a five plus year span where the average American life expectancy has been trending downward. That started around 2017, pre-pandemic. That had not happened since the 1960s. And then there was an influenza outbreak that explained it. Now, what explains the downward trend are all younger, uh, nasty deaths, like alcohol abuse, suicides, opioid overdoses, preventable disease, all things that are bringing down the trend, which sociologists collectively call an epidemic of loneliness. You can read the search in general on this. I'm not making this stuff up. I, my, I, I could not believe it a couple years ago when I read a metadata study showing that chronic loneliness reduces your life expectancy to the tune of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's real. So you could honestly say that modern America is becoming a case study in Genesis, that without friends, you will die. Because as it turns out, the Bible is true. You were made for people. So I have four boys. And um, a couple years ago, we took a vacation to the beach. The boys, like most children, love playing in the sand. Like the dirtier, the better. The more they can get it everywhere, the better. So my third son, Colt, loved bobbing in the water. So Colt was four at the time of this trip. He would strap in his life jacket, run out into the waves, and just start like looking up at the sky. I'd be playing in the sand with my other three boys. I'd look up, and Colt is like a half a mile down the beach. <laughs> like run. Thankfully, my brilliant wife 
bought them all neon green swim shirts so like I could spot the dots and I see the dot. And I like run and grab Coulter, bring him back, start over, I'm playing in the sand, look up, Coulter's half a mile down the beach. <laughs> I promise I'm a good parent. <laughs> you sound like you don't believe me. <laughs> I actually wrote a book about parenting where I tell all the things I did wrong like this. Um, but seriously, so the reason this kept happening, I'm about to blow your mind, you ready? Currents exist, <laughs> okay? Currents are the things that move you down the shoreline of life unless you fight back against them. And what I wanna tell you this morning is that you are a lot more like cult than you think. Cultures have currents. Cultures make you drift, and like a child in the ocean, you don't even notice sometimes until it's too late. Because like, I say that because like, if you're like me, you hear the stats on loneliness and you, oh man, it's, that's so bad for people out there, you know? But that's not me. Well, here's the thing. Um, the way that health studies and the way that Genesis defines this loneliness problem is much more a problem of the soul than the body. Okay, the loneliness that is the modern American current is much more a loneliness of the soul than the body. It's much more the idea of being surrounded by people but known by none of them. All right, it's much more the loneliness in a crowd. It's much more the idea of having lots of friends and family who you used to talk to because now you disagree on politics and you can't get along anymore. It's the idea of being surrounded by community but not actually known by any of them. This is the busyness, it's the overcommitment, it's the idea that, yeah, you moved away from the small group and now you don't have it anymore, or now you're just too busy for it. This is the cultural current of America, and it's not out there, it's in here, too. The church is full of it. The drift of American life is to become busier, wealthier people who used to have friends. And it will kill you, spiritually and physically. Like a kid in the current, you won't even notice. The most dangerous illnesses are always the ones that go undiagnosed, right? You're out to sea, way out to sea, before you even realize it. Unless someone who is bigger than you, stronger than you, and who loves you enough to run down the shoreline of life comes and grabs you and pulls you back. That person's name is Jesus. All right, because the, the story of friendship in the Bible, thankfully, does not end in Genesis 4. It continues, and I would suggest to you that Jesus is friendship made flesh. Why do I say that? Well, look, look at this last evening of Jesus' life before he dies the next day. He's sitting with his friends, the disciples, and he tells them something incredible, many things, but I'm going to pick out this one from John 15. He says, I do not call you servants. I call you friends. Because servants don't know what their master is doing, but everything I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. And there's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for their friends. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. I'm paraphrasing these verses in John 15. They're rightfully some of the most beautiful and poetic in this whole book, maybe even the whole Bible, because Jesus in essence, is saying, I am giving you back what you lost in Eden. I am about to go die, not only to forgive your sins, yes, that is true, but also to reunite you with God and thus with other people. I'm giving you Eden back. It's incredible, all right? And, and he shows us 
that the destiny of salvation is friendship with God and others. And he actually also shows us how to do it because he's being the archetypal friend here, at least in two ways. You see vulnerability and commitment here. Vulnerability, because Jesus is literally saying, I've disclosed everything to you. I've told you everything. He's disclosed himself to us. But, but you know, the Latin root of vulnerable is to make yourself capable of being wounded. You know, it's more than just verbal disclosure. It's dangerous. And Jesus, of course, is about to go lay down his life for his friends. He's committed, point two. Jesus is in it, and he's not leaving. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. All right, so zoom out for a minute with me. This is where I'm going to be a lawyer and make my case, okay? I'm actually a business lawyer. I don't go to the courtroom, but... Play along. (laughs) If in Genesis we were made to be fully known and yet still fully loved, and if what we lost in the fall was trading being fully known for hiding and being fully loved for shame, one of the ways to describe the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done for us is he has come to us and say, I know you thoroughly, and despite your loneliness and shame, I love you anyway. I am inviting you in to the fellowship of the Trinity despite your mess. And I want to say to you this morning, what is a good friend besides someone who knows you fully and loves you anyway? Friends are the people who know all your eccentricities and say, come over to dinner anyway. I'm sticking around. Isn't it a beautiful thing? And I want to say that when we do that to each other, we image the beauty of the gospel to each other. And I would call that covenant friendship, okay? And I say covenant friendship because the word friendship has suffered serious abuse over the past century, all right? It has now been made a verb, something that you can friend, you can do on Facebook by a click, right? Something that you can have thousands of. But I I want to re-enliven this idea because when you hear the word friendship, I want you to hear it with all the weight, the spiritual heaviness of the words quiet time or prayer or church. And, you know, the things that you know are required for Christian flourishing because friendship is required for Christian flourishing. Think about it. Ephesians 5.2 says, be imitators of God. Well, if Jesus is friendship made flesh, then becoming more like Jesus necessarily means becoming more like a friend. How do you do it? I'm glad you asked. I want to spend the rest of my time talking about how to do it. I'm going to give you five arts and habits. I, I, say, I say arts and habits because habits, there are some things that you can do, that you can put on autopilot, that you can make rhythms of life, and you need these things because they help you build the countercurrent, okay? The, the, the ways to swim against the current of American life. But I say arts because anybody with a little bit of EQ knows that relationships are not essentially habits. You cannot put them on autopilot. They're people. They're things that you can work at but never master. But Jesus is the master of covenant friendship. So let's look at him and and learn to imitate his arts and habits. Number one, vulnerability. All right, vulnerability. Um, A couple years ago, I'm sitting in my living room talking with a very close friend when we get a call. And we learned that one of our good friends who is very much like us, similarly situated in life, had become addicted to prescription drugs so badly that he was actually stealing them from other people's houses. And I remember when we hung up the phone that night and looked at each other, 
The question that was on our minds was actually not how did this happen? The question on our minds was, is there anything you're not telling me like this? Um, And the reason is because, look, me and my friend sitting in the room that night and all of us here in the room this morning, we all have the capacity to live behind the fig leaves. It is so easy. You do not have to try. It is so easy to live behind the fig leaves of fake usernames and burner accounts and hidden text change and private browsing windows. It is also so easy to hide behind the bushes of traumas you've never shared, secrets you've never told, jealousies you just won't admit or explain. And whatever it is for you, know that you're not unusual, you're actually very, unfortunately, very usual. It is easy to hide. The problem is that it will melt you from the inside out. The psalmist says, when I remain silent, my bones burned within me. And so with my friend that night, we asked each other that night in the room, one of the scariest questions and one of the most beautiful questions you can ever be asked and answer. We just said, is there anything you're not telling me? It was an incredible moment. Both of us were able to leave that room saying, no, you know everything. And what I wanna ask you this morning is do you have just somebody in your life like that? Do you have somebody who knows you through and through the way that Jesus sees you? Now I realize that just going around telling anyone everything about your life is the sign of relational unhealth, not health, okay? Um, But if one or two, three people, you know, Jesus had a couple people to whom he disclosed everything when he walked this earth. You know, not everyone needs to know everything, but someone does. Do you have someone in your life like that? If you don't, I wanna challenge you this morning, after this service, I want you to text a friend and say, hey, I, got to, I want to talk to you about something. Ask, ask him to coffee. You send him a link to this sermon and say, hey, can I talk about something with you? you? You will find, actually, that life is much more like a high school dance than not. Most people are sitting around waiting to be asked. And, it, and it's beautiful. Now, of course, you will have some people to whom you share your deepest, darkest secret You entrust them with this fragile part of your heart. And they're like, cool, have you seen this meme? (laughs) It just misses it. You'll have some people that hurt you. But by and large, most people will look at you and say, thank you, I cannot believe you trust me enough to share that, thank you. Actually, can I share something with you? (laughs) Because vulnerability catalyzes vulnerability. And that kind of exchange catalyzes covenant friendship. It's the soil where it begins to grow. I realize this is dangerous and costly, okay? I, I realize this is making ourselves capable of being wounded. I'm just saying it's also what Jesus did, right? I, I once talked about this to a group of executive leaders at a conference, and one of them came up to me afterwards. And I was like, I love this idea, but honestly, if my friends knew everything about me, they could get me fired. And I said, exactly, Exactly. You need someone who knows you so well that they could wound you. But instead, like Jesus, they stick around and love you anyway. You can't do this without, number two, the commitment. Okay? Commitment. One night, a couple years ago, I'm talking to a friend, really an acquaintance at the time, named Barrett. We had known each other a little bit. We were talking on my front porch, but we were also kind of having one of those you too moments that C.S. Lewis wrote of, realizing that we were passionate about the same things. And Barrett said something like, you know, we should lean into this. We, we should do more of this. It, it was nothing special 
on the one hand. On the other hand, it was an incredible gesture of commitment. Just the idea of, you and I should do more of this. I wanna suggest to you that words like that have way more power than you think, okay? God made the world through words, right? Incredible. And then he actually passed on that creative power to us in Adam when he said, Adam, name the world, okay? We have the power to create or destroy incredible things with our words. And I wanna suggest that when you name a relationship or when you gesture commitment in a relationship, you do an incredibly creative act that can move towards covenant. Within a year of that conversation for Barrett and I, he actually invited me to be a groomsman in his wedding. And I'll never forget before the ceremony, he gave each of his groomsmen a bottle of scotch and I, I now opened it, and I remember thinking, oh, this is a nice bottle, but what are these numbers written on it in thick black Sharpie marker? The number 2035 was written on the bottle, and the other people had different numbers. And I was like, Barrett, what's this? And he's like, oh, that's the year that we'll drink this together, 2035. I was like, whoa. <laughs> I remember being so honored and so taken aback. Like, that's it. what a claim on my life. <laughs> Barrett assumed that we would still be hanging out in 20 years. It was a little bit scary and also very beautiful. This creative power of just signaling, I expect future relationship. Um, two caveats when we think about commitment and covenant friendship. One, covenant friendship does not require lifelong friendships, okay? I share the story about Barrett because we had known each other in this story for about a year. You know, Jesus was with his disciples only about three years. Some of my stories in my life I have lifelong friends. Um, many of us don't. But you can start anywhere with lots of friends or no friends. You can start as a retiree or as a high school student. You can start as a, a, a busy stay-at-home parent or as a lawyer like me. You can start anywhere. Caveat number two is that covenant friendships don't require lifelong commitments. I realize I just said the same thing twice. <laughs> so I want to make it really clear. Not in the past and not in the future. I'm not talking about a, we a wedding ceremony, okay? Covenant friendship is not marriage. Um, this is not a forever commitment. And really, you should think about it. You can actually go through a lot of friendships in your life and still be a relatively healthy person, okay? You, so I'm not talking about marriage commitments, but I'm just saying in a world where relationships are much more like disposable cups than anything else, you just toss them out once you feel like you're done with it, we could use a little more not less covenanting. And no, it's not gonna be a marriage ceremony, but it can be small gestures of commitment. Tickets to a concert a year from now. A text that says, hey, we should start having coffee regularly. Maybe a Wes Anderson moment beside the lockers where you just say what you think. <laughs> Maybe a contract signed in blood. I don't know, you tell me. Uh, any words have creative power. G.K. Chesterton once wrote that when we make a promise, we make an appointment with ourselves in the future. And I would suggest to you that making an appointment with a friend in the future is one small way you can signal that Christ-like goodness of saying, I choose you, I'm sticking around. What if the church turned a world of digital connections into covenant friendships? Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, number three, time. Now maybe it's because I'm a business lawyer with four boys who lives in a world where no one thinks they have time for anything. <laughs> I, I hear all the time the number one objection to relationship is I just don't have time. I, I don't meet anybody who's like, oh, I don't want friends. But I meet a lot of people who say it's common sense. The problem is it's just not common practice. 
And this is where it's much more habit than art because honestly, you just have to schedule it. You have to prioritize it. And the thing about the American Current is no one's gonna do that for you. But this, I hope, is much more encouraging than convicting. Here's why. Friendship as a habit has a wildly disproportionate effect on your life. Think with me for a second. Anything else that is necessary to physical survival or spiritual thriving takes a ton of time. All right, you gotta sleep usually at least around seven hours a day, if not more. You have to parent and work more than you sleep, unfortunately. You have to eat multiple times a day. Spiritually speaking, you should be praying without ceasing, right? Like I hope there's some rhythm in your life, like scripture before phone or something else where you're reading the Bible regularly. But friendship, friendship, one hour a week will completely change everything else about your life. And I see that as a sign of grace, that God takes our clumsy, small half efforts and just multiplies them like fish and loaves, just lavishes goodness on us with just a little bit of effort. So I'm just saying, one, out of your 168 hours a week, consider devoting towards working at covenant friendship and reflecting Christ in the world. The way that my two best friends, Steve and Matt, and I do this, is we, every other Tuesday night, we sit on one of our porches. And it's really a simple rhythm, schedule-wise. We just sit down and we talk about life. It's normal. On the other hand, it's kind of totally radical because we do this wild thing called vulnerability, where we disclose ourselves to each other, where over time and through this schedule, they know everything from what's in my internet history to what I'm hoping in the future for. We know about each other's marriages, mental health struggles, kids. And, and in this simple rhythm of getting together and working on the vulnerability that then creates the commitment, something incredible has happened. I have become a person without secrets. And I just want to tell you how comforting it is to stand up before you this morning. Y'all look like lovely people. <laughs> but you're strangers to me. It, but it is so deeply comforting to stand up in front of you and say, I am a person without secrets. You don't know them all. You probably won't. But Steve and Matt do. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm good. I'm not saying I'm well-behaved. I'm just saying somebody knows it all. And in that, I feel the beauty of the gospel because my friends Steve and Matt every Tuesday night hear about my mess and say, Justin, you're loved by Christ and you're loved by us anyway. Wow. Talk about taking the theology in your head and moving it to the lived experience of your heart and body. Friendship will do that for you. Um, number four, technology. You can't talk about relationships right now without talking about technology. This is really important. You know why, because in the past decade, everything has changed, all right? We now have incredible technologies that keep us digitally updated on many people's lives. And I'd say a lot of this is great, okay? Honestly, I have a text chain with my friends, multiple actually, where we send absurd amounts of GIFs, <laughs> um, meals that we eat, workout updates, prayer requests, jokes, political debates, theological arguments, all the things, right? And I love it, honestly, I love it. It's a great source of updates and connections, but I just want to tell you that technological connections are snacks. Embodied relationships are meals, okay? You know the difference, right? Snacks are the things that make you feel full 
while leaving you completely unnourished. And you know what happens to your body when you live like that, okay? What I'm saying is what happens to your soul when you live on technological connections is that you atrophy and you will die. You, you, so don't make the snack the meal. Technological connections are great, and I have got plenty of diatribes on social media like against what's happening. But, but I, mostly, actually, I want to say lots of this can be good, okay? I love the baby pictures. I love the updates. I love the funny memes. I love the prayer requests. I also love Oreos and chips, okay? But I don't live on them, and you shouldn't live on technological connections either because they don't nourish the life that you were made for. You were made for people in the flesh. You need high fives and to hear somebody say, I love you. You, you need a hug. You, you need to confess and cry with each other. You also need to be close enough to annoy each other so that you learn to forgive each other, which is one of the reasons that we need in person, not just virtual church, is because coming around and making each other mad and annoying each other is kind of the point. You have to learn to be with sinners and forgive each other in close quarters. And all you who are sitting here with your families this morning are now feeling awkward and not looking at each other. Because it happens in the household too. It's the school of love. We need it. That's why Hebrews 10, 25 says, don't give up the habit of meeting together. You need each other. Embodied presence nourishes your soul. So technology can be great, but I suggest sticking with the oldest technology of fire. Sit around a fire pit once a week or so and actually be embodied and talk. Um, Number five, this is my last one. I'm gonna try to land this plane where we took off. The fire of friendship is evangelism. So Steve and I grew in our relationship in high school. And uh, we moved from the shared activities of hacky sacks and skateboards to the shared life of disclosing ourselves, of vulnerability and commitment. We grew in our faith as we grew in our friendship. It was amazing what the Lord was doing in our life. But somewhere along the way, we met this other guy um, who clearly wanted a friend. He started hanging out you know, where we were and signaling that he wanted friendship too. And we did this awful thing where we assumed that to keep our friendship strong, we had to keep it closed. And we let this guy in just enough you know, to see what we were about, but held him far enough to make him know, you know and let him know that, that he wasn't really welcome. It was terrible. It's one of the most awful things you can do to anybody. Why? Because it's the inversion of the gospel of Jesus. Okay? Jesus, in Jesus, the Trinitarian God opens the relationship of the Trinity to us at great personal cost and says, children, you are welcome into the fellowship, to the happy dance of eternity. So covenant friendship is not just not exclusive, it is cosmically inclusive. Friendship invites the world in, real friendship does. And in a version of this story that leaves out all the juicy details because are kind of private. <laughs> By God's grace, Steve and I uh, repented. And uh, the short version of the story is that this friend got close enough to see how rotten we were, but also close enough to see how good the Jesus we followed actually was. Which is, if you want an example of providence, there it is. He actually came to know Jesus and get baptized in spite of us. You can clap for that. <laughs> Amen. This friend's name is Matt. 
He's the guy that we still hang out with every other Tuesday night. We're still trucking. Um, and I named my second son after Stephen Matt. His name is Asher Stephen Matthew Early. Asher means the happiness or blessedness of God. And Stephen and Matt are my two covenant friends, amongst others. And Asher reminds me that the happiness of God is found in receiving the covenant friendship of Jesus and then extending it to the world. And Matt reminds me that this fire of friendship is contagious. It invites the world in. So I just want to close with this idea. Think about evangelism right now. Think about inviting the world in. It's so hard to go talk to people about love and justice and dignity and God and sin and salvation. It's like we all have different meanings of those words. Like if you haven't noticed, apologetics is difficult right now in words. But Madeline Lengel once wrote, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, but by showing them a light so lovely that they long with all their hearts to know the source of it. And I want to suggest to you that the fire of friendship just could be, in our modern moment, that light of the gospel. What if this church, what if the church in America was a place where we kindled the fire of covenant friendship, where we worked on the vulnerability in commitment, where we scheduled it and put away the technology and lit up this dark world of loneliness and said, all you who are cold and weary and lonely, come out of the current and come into this church. Receive the covenant friendship of Christ. That would be a beautiful thing. You were made for people, and so are your neighbors. So let's kindle the fire of covenant friendship, receive the covenant friendship of Jesus, and then go light up the world with it. Let me pray with you. Oh Lord, thank you for these people, these friends of God this morning. Thank you for this vision of the gospel where we see that you have extended the friendship of the Trinity to us. And, and it actually, it is our destiny. Praise God, despite our sin and because of the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, to spend eternity in friendship with each other and with you. You are good. You are good to us. May we be changed by that goodness this morning and go out and extend that goodness to the world. It's in your name we pray, amen.